Hello and welcome to the Granta Podcast. My name is Rachel Allen and today I'm delighted to be joined by Lindsay Hilson. Lindsay is the international editor of Channel 4 News. She is the author of Sandstorm, Libya in the Time of Revolution, and in 1994 she was the only English-speaking foreign correspondent in Rwanda when the genocide began. Her essay in the latest issue of Granta tells of her return to the country 19 years after the conflict. Here, we talk about her time in Rwanda, Libya, and how countries can repair in the aftermath of war. For years, the rainy season would bring up bodies that had lain where they were slaughtered. You might see clothes floating in a flooded field, or stumble across a leg bone or a child's skull half covered in mud. Nowadays, the rain lifts memories to the surface. It beats down on iron roofs like a manic drum, conjuring demons that Rwandans suppress for the rest of the year. Pastors, counsellors and doctors open their doors to find people they haven't seen for months, complaining of non-specific pains and worries, sleeplessness and headaches. Rain pitches them back to the second week of April 1994, when the sky opened up like a vast cataract and the killing began. My own memories of that week are fragmented, like a reel of old film with frames missing. I can see a truck, loaded with bleeding bodies, driving at speed through the gates of a hospital in Kigali. Torrential rain washes blood across the yard and down the drains. I remember thinking, this isn't a metaphor. The gutters are running red with blood. At first I believed the images would last forever, but memory is a tricky thing and the pictures in my head have shifted. Inside the ward, I can see a woman holding a baby whose arm has been chopped off with a machete. Or is it a leg? She's wandering around, trying to get a nurse to pay attention, but the hospital is so full of grievously injured patients that no one is listening. Some frames remain clear and frozen despite the passing years. Flies buzz over four women with their throats cut outside a clinic in the Kigali suburb of Dikondo. A soldier leans on his AK-47 on the path outside my house. Tracers arc through the night sky. The gunfire stops. The rain eases. And there is silence. I was living in Kigali when the massacre started, working for UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund. Having previously been a journalist, I began to report for newspapers and radio. But it wasn't like other assignments where you go in search of the story... The story erupted around me. In the years that followed, I spent many months in Rwanda. Each time I left, I found it harder to return. I was mired in that week, unable to subsume my feelings of guilt for having witnessed the horror without immediately understanding what it meant and why it was happening. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives were lost before I realised that I was witnessing not simply mass murder, but genocide. Thank you for that reading, Lindsay. Um, so the first question I'd like to ask is about uh, your piece in Granta 125, After the War, the rainy season when you returned to Oranda 19 years after the Civil War. You mentioned you were working for UNICEF at the time and watching the story, as you say in your own words, erupt around you. It must have been incredibly frightening and difficult. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your time in Rwanda in 1994 that week and how you saw the genocide unfold? Well, I'll always remember the night that the plane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi came down 
and that was the incident that triggered the genocide. I was having dinner with friends and we heard this this boom sound. We went rushing into the garden and could see a glow on the horizon. I, I didn't know what it was. But I drove back to my house and then I got a phone call, in fact, from a friend in London who worked for, for the BBC and he said, you know, that that was the plane carrying the president's. So I thought, let me go to the airport. I better go to the airport, find out what's happening. So I rang a local journalist and he said, don't go out. Do not go out. There are roadblocks everywhere. And that was when I realised I realised that this was, this was going to be a terrible situation. And for the first few days, I couldn't get out of my house. I knew there was killing going on. I was talking on the phone to lots of Rwandan friends I had because I'd been living there for two months, so I knew a lot of people. And people were telling me stories of hiding in cupboards and hiding in basements as gangs of armed killers were coming around looking for Tutsis. And I felt I had to go out and report, but there was a soldier outside my house. He kept pushing me back, but eventually I decided I had to go. And I, I got up and I got into my car. I was terrified I was going to run out of petrol. I was heading for the Red Cross office. It was only a few yards ago, but I have no sense of direction. I was terrified I was going to get lost. And I had to drive through these roadblocks with bodies at the sides of the roads and men with, with red eyes. They were drunk and there were empty beer bottles and machetes everywhere. And I drove to the Red Cross and then I went out with the aid workers. And that was when I saw what I, I described at the um, at the beginning of this, this essay for Granto, where I saw the bodies of the women buzzing with flies outside the clinic and the hospital where Médecins Sans Frontières were working, where where the gutters were running with, with blood, and there were people, there were just truckloads and truckloads of, of bodies coming in. I've, I've never seen anything like it before, and I hope I never see anything like it again. You mentioned also in the piece how you mentioned feeling guilty about not understanding the situation around you, and I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how you dealt with the aftermath of that week and if you managed to resolve that guilt at all. Well, I don't think I'll ever resolve the guilt. But the the point is that when you look with hindsight, it's obvious that it was genocide. You know, there have been thousands, tens of thousands of academic articles and inquiries and so on. But at the time, it's very hard to put yourself back in, in, in the situation I was in where you really don't know what's going on around you. And so what seems obvious now did not seem obvious then. And yet, of course, I feel I should have known that it was a genocide. Of course, I should have realised. And then I think, you know, I should have, I should have saved people. But, you know, people were ringing me up and, you know, begging for my, for my help. And one of the people who, who rang me up in that first week um, was called um, Francois. And um, he wanted my help because a Belgian man who lived next door to him had been killed and he didn't know what to do with him. He, and so I, I said, well, you just have to bury the body. And he was afraid that the killers would, would, if he buried the body, they would say that he was a friend of the Belgian and then they would kill him too. So I remember all these conversations. And many years later, I heard that Francois had been arrested for killing the Belgian, but I knew he hadn't done it. And so one of my purposes in going back and, and writing this story for Granta was I wanted to find out what happened to Francois, and I did find out, and that, that's, uh, that's in, in the essay. And I think that for me there are a lot of things which were unresolved, which I, I tried to resolve by, by going back and, and by writing, but maybe 
Maybe I have to accept that some things will never be resolved. The unresolved and the return to a place of conflict is something I'd like to talk about. When we think about areas of the world that may have received media attention and global awareness for a short period of time because of conflict or tragedy, what do you think can occur when this attention dies away and in the aftermath of the conflict to help rebuild an area? Because obviously there are still things that are unresolved. Progress moves very slowly in areas after conflict. So how do we keep these places in people's minds? Well, I, th I think that in the West we, we have this very short attention span and we want everything to be resolved quickly, don't we? So Libya, I spent 2011 in, in Libya, I wrote a book about it. And now um, Libya's a mess. You know, it, it's extremely... They had a revolution, they were all thrilled about overthrowing um, Colonel Gaddafi. And now there is no state, there is no law and order, there, you know, there is no police, there is no nothing. And and I think that a lot of people in the West, we feel rather impatient about that. And we say, oh, for goodness sake, can't they get their act together? Well, I mean, I don't know how long the French Revolution took, but it took more than a couple of years, didn't it, to resolve itself. And likewise with Rwanda, we were very keen. There were lots of stories about reconciliation. Lots of people who'd never been to Rwanda before, lots of journalists went and wrote all these sort of happy, clappy stories about reconciliation. How, you know, what what kind of... How presumptuous can you get and to go back and, and tell people that they should be reconciling? This is such a complex issue. And that, again, is something I, I tried to look at. How do people live together? And I think that what I learned about Rwanda now is that on the surface, things are pretty good um, comparatively. There has been a lot of development, roads built, much better health care than there used to be. But you have this sense of people who are unhealed living with people who are unforgiven. The killers and the victims and the families of the victims all living side by side. And that's something, that's the way it is. It's very hard for outsiders to understand it. But I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that people are going to be okay with that. I think that what goes on inside people's heads, it's mysterious. It takes a long time and often it passes down through generations. To return to your time in Libya, you were in Tripoli at the time of Gaddafi's fall. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what you thought initially was going to come from this revolution after seeing what happened in Tunisia and Egypt. Did you believe that Gaddafi's regime could fall after 42 years? And if so, what did you predict from the aftermath? Yeah, I certainly thought that Gaddafi would fall um, because I, I spent a lot of time uh, with the rebels in both the east and the west of the, the country and time in Tripoli during the revolution. And it was clear to me that he would not be able to, to hold on. I think that the war would have lasted a lot longer if it hadn't been for the NATO intervention. There's no question that the bombing of ins installations um, by uh, NATO forces speeded up that process. But what would happen afterwards? I The, the problem with Gaddafi was that it, he, there was no state, there was no proper government. He was like a spider at the centre of the web. And once he fell, the web just fell apart too. And Libyans, after 42 years of dictatorship, had no experience of governing. And so I think it wasn't surprising 
that what you got was anarchy. And I use the word advisedly. I don't mean in that sort of loose way that journalists use, oh gosh, it's chaos around here. I mean anarchy in the sense of there being no government, nobody in control, and so many weapons around. On the one hand, I looked at it optimistically. I said, well, there's only six million people in Libya. They're all of the same, more or less the same ethnic group, more or less the same religion. There's no big cleavages along ethnic or religious lines, as you have, for example, in Syria or to some extent in, in Egypt. Um, they're, they're pretty much all Arabs, some Berbers, and they're all Sunnis. Um, they're rich. They have oil. Some of them are pretty well educated. A lot of people have been outside. They have all sorts of things going for them. But the phase that they're going through now is a phase where they have completely failed to disarm militia and to prevent other militia from arming themselves. And that is because of the vacuum at the heart of, of government. And I think that one of the things I've learned from the Libyan revolution, from, from other revolutions that I've covered, is how important boring things are how important civil servants are, how important bureaucracy is, how important it is to have a system, because what we're seeing in Libya now is what happens when you don't have any of those things. Gaddafi himself is a prominent figure in the contemporary consciousness. I think he existed in the British mindset for a while anyway as this roguish clown, and he built this stereotype of the mad dictator, the mad dog of the Middle East is what Reagan called him even though he was a dangerous and violent man and to Libyans a dictator. What was it like for you uncovering the man himself for your book, someone who held such a gripping and almost unbelievable character for the modern world? Well, that was one of the things that made the book so exciting to write, was finding out not just the horror but the craziness, because the craziness was real. I mean, you know, this this was a man who, you know, woke up one day and said his favourite colour was green and all the the doors and the window frames and everything had to be painted green in the country and the main square was going to be called Green Square and, and, and so on. I mean, he, he was he was barking. Um but that became more and more menacing. And um and then in the end it, it was really his family which were like a mafia family which were running uh running Libya and one of the things which I found extraordinary was the complete contradiction so you, you had an occasion when he actually got into um, a digger himself and drove it through the walls of a prison saying there will be no more prisoners there are no political prisoners in Libya and he actually he got all the diplomats to watch and he actually crushed the walls of this prison and the prisoners came out but then more and more prisoners were incarcerated and eventually you had what is the the central um, event in modern Libyan history which was the massacre of 1,270 men, political prisoners, at Abu Slim. And so he was this extraordinarily contradictory character and the way he dressed, all his different costumes. And that was extraordinary to find out about but I think that many Libyans did resent that we in the outside world did see him as nuts and as sort of entertaining, and they lived in terror. In another of our podcasts, journalist Sonia Falero talked about her time as a reporter and the dangers involved as working as one, but also the heightened awareness of your gender in both an industry dominated by men and reporting in areas of the world where women are less visible. 
Would you agree that the danger is heightened for a woman reporting as opposed to a man? And how have you found your gender has come into play within the industry? On the whole, I don't think it makes any difference whether you're a man or a woman when it comes to danger. Um, my very close friend Marie Colvin was killed in Syria and the, the shell that killed her did not discriminate by gender. It killed a, a French photographer, a man called Remy Oshlik. And that is what we all fear the most. There is um, a danger of rape or assault, but th that danger is there for men as well, you know. Um, and I think that sometimes we um, exaggerate the differences because on the whole, I don't think the differences are that great. I think that generally, particularly in the Middle East, it's a huge advantage to be a woman because you get treated as a sort of honorary man. I, I've never had any occasion when I couldn't interview a general or a president or something because I was a woman. You, you get treated with extraordinary courtesy. Um, but for men, it can be difficult to get to interview women because women often live separately and they're sort of behind the screen, as it were, in the kitchen. I can always go in and, and talk to the women. So I can always get their story as well. I can get the whole thing, the men, the male and the female perspective. But sometimes for men, they can't get the female perspective. Um, but as I always say, I don't think it's fair to discriminate against men. I don't think that one should uh, say that they can't be correspondents in these countries. I just think it's much more difficult for them. Um, and obviously your book, Sandstorm, uh, was written and published last year. Um, do you think you have any conflicting concerns as both a writer and a journalist? And if so, how do you marry these concerns? I'm just thinking that once attached to a story, it must be incredibly a diff difficult to achieve achieve objectivity and avoid any sort of emotional attachments. Or yeah, no, I mean, actually, the the, the things I find difficult is um, is when you're doing television, you're running around all the time and you don't take enough notes. That's the most difficult thing for me. And I I go back and I want to write, and I realize I, I haven't written enough notes. And you know, because when you do interviews, you, you you don't write notes because you're on camera the whole time. So actually it's a rather practical thing, which I, I find difficult. I think in terms of the, the sort of uh, attachment and emotion, and one of the things that you do, the television does well is it conveys the emotion of the moment, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to capture in my writing uh, as well. So I think in both the writing and the television journalism, you're sort of going in and out. You're, you're observing the emotion, you're, you're trying to understand the emotions people are going through. And yes, of course, you do have emotions yourself. You're, you're not, I'm not an automaton, I'm a human being. And if you're not a human being, you're a lousy journalist. But then you are trying to pull back and, and be objective. I think the most, the most difficult thing is that in, in TV news, you never spend enough time with people. And so what I did with the Libya book was I was, I was much more organized than I normally am and I made sure that people I got to meet I took down their phone numbers and their emails and so on so that I could go back and interview them in much more depth when I was writing because that's the thing that you miss out on um, doing the news you're, you're there and you're gone and if you want to write with any you know any real meaning you you have to spend more time you really have to get to know people better your whole career has been within the news industry I wonder if you could Tell me a little bit about what made you want to enter the news industry and become a reporter and how you've seen it change during your time working within the industry. Well, actually, I started off as an aid worker. I was with Oxfam and then UNICEF. 
Um, but then I, I realised that, that was pretty useless because I wasn't a nurse or a doctor or an agronomist or anything useful. And there was nowhere for me to go in it except to be an administrator. And I really am not as good at administering anything. And so I thought, well, the only skills I've got is, you know, I can read, write and ask questions in a few languages. So I think I'd better be a journalist. So I became a journalist and... Um, and then I realised that that was what I should have been from the beginning because I love it. Because, uh, in a sense, I've always done the same thing. I mean, I've done it as a freelance, I've done it for radio, or writing or, or TV. Um, and it is that thing of going to where history is happening and and finding out what it feels like and finding out what people are going through. And And those experiences are extraordinary. What has changed? So much has changed. I mean, the technology has changed. Tremendously. I mean, I used to, when I worked for the BBC in Kenya, I used to record uh, my stories on a cassette, um, a little cassette tape, and I would go to the airport and collar anybody who looked British and say, excuse me, would you mind taking this on the plane back to London? And then there was a, a chap at Heathrow whose job it was to stand there with a sign and pick up tapes sent by BBC correspondents from all over the world. Can you imagine That's that now, amazing. the very idea of giving tapes to um, to strangers on the plane? Um, but that was <laughs> how we did it. And, of course, you know, you had time. I would take... I used to jump on a missionary aeroplane from Nairobi, where I was living, and go up to Juba in, in South Sudan and, um, you know, report for a couple of weeks... I would not be in communication with anybody and nobody would worry about me. And then I'd get a plane back and then I'd send my stories. Well, nowadays, if you're not in touch with the news desk every other hour, they think you're dead or something terrible has happened. Um, and also, where's their story and why aren't you tweeting and where's your blog? And, you know, you're supposed to, you're supposed to produce mm. your work before you've had the time to find out what the hell is going on. And that, I suppose, that, that luxury of time we really don't have anymore. And, I, you know, lots of things are good. It's good to be immediate. It's good to do live broadcasts. It's good to get things out quickly. But sometimes you need a bit of time to find out, to understand, to interview more people. And that is such a luxury. We rarely have it these days. Any big journalist reporter heroes that have been a big inspiration well, I, I suppose my my journalistic heroes would be Martha Gellhorn, who had the ability to write in one paragraph a scene that you could remember for the rest of your life, just in a few words. She was the most brilliant observer and writer. And um, James Cameron, who was always funny. Uh, James Cameron, who wrote for the you know for the Guardian in the sixties and seventies. He always managed to be funny uh, uh, as well as um, uh, as very committed politically as a journalist. And um, for television, Charles Wheeler. Charles Wheeler is was just the most um, fantastic, humane journalist. The person who would who would treat a peasant woman or a Kurdish refugee with exactly the same dignity and respect as he would the Queen. And that was how he reported. And what are you working on next? Do you have plans to write any more books? It's a secret. <laughs> I want to write another book. It's difficult because I have day-to-day -day work as a news reporter. And um, I always, 
I sort of struggle with having the right to write a book. A lot of the countries I'm interested in, the places I'm interested in, I think I don't speak the language, I don't know it well enough, other people are better qualified than me. So the first thing I have to do is overcome that and, and find something which I feel I have the right to write about. That's the first hurdle and I, I'm just climbing it at the moment. Okay, well thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Granter Podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granter, go to www.granter.com.